Electing a president can be stressful and difficult. The question is, but then the election is supposed to clearly end. Not so in 2020. The long American tradition of a defeated president accepting loss does not apply right now. It is statistically impossible that the person, me, that led the charge lost. Instead, President Donald Trump and his campaign have challenged the results of the election in court using baseless claims of voter fraud, which delayed the presidential transition for the man who will take over next month. President-elect Joe Biden is counseling calm about the transition tonight, even if President Trump never concedes he lost. But you know what? Roller coaster transitions are not new. The United States has held 59 presidential elections, and along the way, we've seen some very choppy transitions in power. Between the moment that Lincoln is elected in November and the moment that he takes office in March, the country basically fell apart. In this episode, we look back at times in American history when the post-election road was rough, sometimes so rough it caused decades, even a century of harm to the country. What made those transitions so difficult? And how did the country move on and accept a new president? I mean, how bad can it get? From the PBS NewsHour, this is America Interrupted. I'm Lisa Desjardins. This year, uh, and this is quite new and unusual, um, we have you know, a, a, a losing candidate who is contesting the legitimacy of uh, the election and really actively trying to uh, screw up the transition process. And that's that's Beverly Gage. She teaches American studies and history at Yale University. And we asked her to walk us through a few moments in American history when the passing of power got complicated. Let's talk about our history of transitions. We have a long history of presidential transitions. I want to start at the beginning and actually with a positive one. The very first bitter election that we had, 1800, Thomas Jefferson beats John Adams, current president. He gets sent out the door. All the fans of the musical Hamilton know what I'm talking about right now. It was a nasty election. What happened in the transition? Right. Well, it was a very bitter election, and it was a very, very rocky and drawn-out process in which uh, the election was somewhat uncertain. There were lots of different factions weighing in. But in the end, uh, the transition actually happened. And I think it's for many people, you know, 1800 and 1801 are the moment when they thought, hey, this thing's really going to work. <laughs> <laughs> this thing we got it. We got a chance. Exactly, at this. this nation that we have invented uh, is actually going to last for a while. What do we know about the approach at the time to this idea of resigning from power or stepping out of the limelight when you need to? Well, George Washington had set a really powerful precedent on this front. And there were a lot of worries when Washington was in power that, in fact, he was going to stay on. He was going to become something more like a king, right? This is an incredible new experiment, the idea of stepping down. Most people are familiar with monarchies in this moment. And so Washington had set this really powerful precedent after two terms. 
I want to now go to the other end of U.S. history. Bill Clinton transferring power to George W. Bush in 2001. The 2000 election itself became a numerical and vote counting mess. It all came down to the vote in Florida, which itself was just within a few hundred votes. There were lawyers, court fights. Gore does not concede for weeks. My question is, what did all that mean for George W. Bush? Well, I think what couldn't happen was the official sort of transfer of administrative support. Um, And that came very, very late in the 2000 election. And, you know, there are real cases that people have made that that for shortened transition, which was just a couple of weeks in the end, the moment in which, you know, the General Services Administration and other parts of the government really begin to actively support the president, you begin to get security briefings, etc., that that for shortened time actually left Bush in a pretty rocky position uh, when he came in. Uh, there are people who have suggested that, you know, some of the, the, the security security issues there may have meant that they were less prepared for something like 9-11 than they might otherwise have been. I'm wondering, you know, Gore waited until December 13th to concede, but he did concede, even though he lost by just 537 votes in that decisive state of Florida. Did he have to concede? And what did it matter that he did? Right. Well, he doesn't have to concede. Um, you know, if you if you win, you win. And if you lose, you lose. And if you lose and you say, I wish I had won, it doesn't really matter because you still lost. And so that was certainly the, the case with Gore. And uh, that said, he had a lot of options in that moment about what he could have done. He could have made himself out to be a martyr. He could have said, you know, we will seek revenge <laughs> next time around. I mean, there are a whole lot of steps, as, as we're seeing play out now in an election that wasn't nearly uh, as close and isn't uh, legitimately contestable. Hmm. George W. Bush had about a month to get ready to transition to the presidency. But I want to now talk about the time a president had just two days of transition. Rutherford B. Hayes, 1876. This is the post-Civil War era reconstruction. It's a very complicated tale, but a fascinating one. Can you explain to people how it happened that the nation held an election in November, but made it all the way to March, which was when we inaugurated presidents then, without a clear winner? Right. The 1876 election is uh, one of the most bitter, drawn out, I think, in the end, uh, quite consequential and quite devastating uh, elections in American history. So you have Rutherford B. Hayes, uh, the Republican running against Samuel Tilden, the Democrat. So we are about a decade out from the end of the Civil War at this point. And the Republicans and Democrats look a lot different than they do today. So the Democrats really are the party of the South, uh, largely, not exclusively. And the Republicans are still, you know, the party of Lincoln. But in 1876, you get a very confusing, very violent and bitter election in which 
Uh, once the results come in, again, we don't really have a clear winner. And the reason for that is that there are several southern states that have real issues of voter intimidation, um, largely bands of kind of organized white Southern Democrats who have armed themselves and are um, conducting pretty violent reprisals and threats against Black voters who are at that point mostly voting uh, Republican. And so ultimately, they have to appoint a commission that is composed of uh, some members of Congress, some members of the Supreme Court. That commission brings it down to the wire, down to early March, and then they vote. Uh, it's 15 members, and they vote eight to seven along almost totally partisan lines to, in fact, give the election to Hayes. And so then there are two days, uh, and he becomes president. But, you know, the, the story goes that one of the deals that's made in order to have Hayes become president is that the Republican Party agrees kind of to bring an end to Reconstruction in the South, to pull federal troops out of the South for the first time, you know, since the end of the Civil War. But effectively, what that means is that they've sort of handed the South over to uh, what becomes the Jim Crow system. And so from the late 1870s onward, one of the effects of uh, what happens in that election is that Black voters become increasingly disenfranchised. Uh, you really see a uh, reign of violence in a lot of southern states that seem to have been in many ways legitimized by that election. Can you talk about this idea that these transitions come in moments of crisis like that, moments of great divide, and how far-reaching can their effects be? These can be really dramatic moments. They can really determine the country's future for a long time. 1876 really is a critical election in terms of the structures of white supremacy that are going to be put in place over the next several decades and last for quite a long time. One of the notable features about our moment is that this transition is going on in the midst of the pandemic. And in the midst of what many people understand to be already a, a rapidly worsening crisis, but one that is likely to get worse and worse over these months of transition in which the current White House doesn't have a lot of interest in intervening or participating there. And the Biden administration seems to be wanting to do things, but of course, not yet in power. You know, we were talking about 1876, but... That did not happen spontaneously. It was the child of another tough transition, another consequential one, from President James Buchanan to Abraham Lincoln. In 1860, Buchanan did not run for re-election. This led to a whole bunch of candidates running. Lincoln ended up winning. But can you talk about what was happening as Lincoln was getting ready to take office? Right. So 1860, of course, is probably our model of how we don't want presidential transitions to go, which is to say, between the moment that Lincoln is elected in November and the moment that he takes office in March, the country basically fell apart. Uh, southern states began to secede. And that happened kind of one after another, not all of them uh, by the time that he had taken office, but many. And so he really was coming into a country that was on the verge of collapse already, although Fort Sumter doesn't happen until he's already in office. And 
uh, he understood himself to be in pretty serious danger. So he took the train uh, into Washington, but he felt that he had to sneak in, particularly through the state of Maryland, which was a slave state, was considered to be you know, sympathetic to the secessionist movement. And uh, there were all sorts of rumors of murderous plots afoot. And so he sort of disguised himself. It was a moment when he wasn't even sure he was going to uh, live to, to see his first day as president. I mean, here's a new president elected in this time of turmoil, comes into office. Did it matter how that transition went in terms of his ability to win the Civil War? I mean, do we think that affected the length of the Civil War? I think it did in a couple of ways. So again, we had a much longer transition period than we have now. And one of the things that happened over the course of that transition period was not only that the Southern states began to declare themselves as seceding from the Union, but that uh, Buchanan, who didn't really want to take on this struggle, and in fact, in many ways, was quite uh, sympathetic to what was happening, um, allowed the Southern states uh, kind of to retreat with federal property to have the arms and the forts, in some cases, even uh, the soldiers that were on their soil rather than go in and contest that. And so I think we could have seen a very, very different story had Buchanan behaved differently and not simply kind of let let all of this federal property go. I want to ask you now big picture. We've talked about these really rough spots in our imperfect democracy. Is there really concern that in a transition, the guardrails could completely fall off? Or do we feel like our system has gotten us through these rough spots and is solid. So you think about something like the 1960 election in which Richard Nixon lost very, very narrowly to John Kennedy. And a lot of people have been looking to that election to say, look at Richard Nixon. He didn't actively contest that election, even though there were lots of reasons to do it. It was extremely close. He didn't do that. That's partly true and partly not true. He didn't publicly do it. He himself and many of his supporters held on to an idea and a story that that election had been stolen from them. And I think, in fact, what happened in 1960 uh, then becomes one of the things that helps to explain Watergate, explains why he was so nervous in 1972, why he felt he had to have all of these kind of electoral machinations. So I think there are... Uh, our public stories, and then within each party and within kind of the political uh, circles in Washington, there are sometimes other narratives that actually have quite a, quite a lot of power. It fuels its own kind of political culture and then goes on to shape uh, how the next transition happens and, 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 and the one after that. Sitting here at the end of 2020, which has felt like a decade to all of us, Beverly, how long until it gets good again? How long does it take for the country to sort of get back on its feet and get back to some semblance of normal? Uh, I'm not sure I have an answer for you in this particular case, in part because we're in sort of a unique position, which is to say a lot of the answer to that um, is not going to depend on the politics exactly. A lot of that's going to depend on what happens with the vaccines, with the virus, and then, you know, in an extended way, 
way what happens with the economy. And those are related to, to the politics and to the transition, but they are not the same thing. And even presidents only have so much control over what happens. But should we be optimistic? Should we say, yeah, all right, so it's all going to be fine by summer. <laughs> There is no basis in history for believing that that is true, but I would like to think so. Here's to hope and optimism, which also I think is something that has long fueled the American democracy. So thank you for that, Beverly Gage. All right. Thanks a lot. (laughs) Should we be optimistic about what's ahead after this bumpy transition? Well, the nation's batting average isn't bad. We've had 45 presidencies. Sure, sometimes the handoffs weren't pleasant, but just a handful of transitions were actually disruptive. And we've made it through all of them. So far. This episode was produced by Rachel Welford and Vika Aronson and edited by Erica R. Hendry and Emily Carpo. Fact-checking by Maya Linnae-Bura and music by Blue Dot Sessions. Our thanks to Travis Daub, Vanessa Dennis, James Williams, and Maura Shannon. Our executive producer is Sarah Just. You can follow all of our coverage on air and on our website, pbs.org newshour. Thanks for listening.